Over the past several weeks, uh, we've been studying parables that Jesus used to teach his followers, and he often used them to shock his followers. And so often we hear the parables, and we hear them over and over again, and we sometimes know the story inside out, at least that's what we think. And often we wouldn't be shocked in a Sunday morning service thinking God's word couldn't possibly shock us. So this morning we read from the parable of the Good Samaritan, which it's known by many. And may we listen with open hearts, minds, and ears again to understand how God is speaking to us today. And maybe you won't be shocked, and that's okay. But hopefully we'll continue to hear what the Holy Spirit of Jesus is speaking to us to grow his kingdom here on this earth today, to transform his people, and to transform his church. So let's pray. Father God, you've again blessed us with the privilege and opportunity and the freedom to hear from your word. And this morning it might be an unfamiliar word to some and quite familiar to others, but your word is the living word. It is the active word. It cuts deep and penetrates into our hearts. So please soften our hearts again this morning and transform our hearts and lives by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So our reading is from uh, the Gospel of Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. Luke 10, 25 to 37. And as mentioned, it's often known as the parable of the Good Samaritan. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, Well, who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And so too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. 
Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As elders, uh, shortly we'll be beginning a study on a leadership book by author Todd Bolsinger titled Canoeing the Mountains, Christian Leadership in Uncharted Territory. And this book gives us a story of Lewis and Clark, and I think I've shared this story with you before, but I believe repetition is good. Lewis and Clark were two American explorers commissioned by President Thomas Jefferson to explore the newly acquired territory of the western United States, and this was in the early 1800s. They were to leave the East Coast in a canoe and travel down the Missouri waterway towards the Pacific Ocean. Now, anyone who's traveled from east to west knows what you come up against geographically. You come up against the mountains. So here they were in their canoes, expecting a reasonably flat terrain. And they came up against the mountains. Right before their very eyes were what we know as is the Rocky Mountains. They realize that they need to adapt and they need to make changes to their route. This was not what was expected. This book uses the analogy of Lewis and Clark to remind us that sometimes it seems that we are set on a journey through perhaps a peaceful waterway, but upon us might come very quick rapids, and there could even be mountains and perhaps other gigantic obstacles. We think about the victim in this parable. He didn't set out on this kind of journey. And we can ask that question, what's next in our journey of life? What's next in the journey of the church? We don't always know. And how can we canoe something that does not appear canoeable? I think it's very safe to assume that we don't always know, and it's probably a good thing that we don't, what's next. Sometimes life's journeys take us off the map. And when we have this map before us and we go off the map, there's no instructions, there's no directions, there's not like a one, two, three, four, here's your steps. Yes, we have God's word, but God gives us his words and we have a lot of discerning and, and reading to do. Yes, we have in the Christian Reformed Church the church order and it gives us direction. But we still have to discern. We still come across obstacles, the unknowns. We sometimes go in unequipped. And I think far too often we want to walk away from the obstacles. Lewis and Clark, they had options. They could have canoe, turned around, canoed back. Yes, sure, they would have disappointed the president. They would have changed history. Or they could have gone against all odds and pressed forward, canoeing the mountains, so to speak. Sometimes going against all odds, moving forward in risk and courage. And you know what? People could look upon this as being reckless or even unwise. In the parable this morning, we're given a few characters. 
And when we're given these characters, they seem to be rather easy for us to make judgments about one way or the other. The first character the passage begins with is an expert teacher of the law, a lawyer, and he knew his stuff. As mentioned in verse 25, he wanted to test Jesus, and this lawyer approached Jesus with the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And this guy knew his law, so Jesus asked him to answer the question. And the expert answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus replied, Yeah, that's correct. Do this, and you will live. Now, this reply from Jesus should at least be a shock to many of us. Because we have to, our bells and whistles should be going off because we have to ask, well, where does grace come in? Where does faith come in? And this statement sounds like a work-based statement. And the Jews at this time were very works-based. They had 613 laws from the Torah, the five books of Moses, 613. The lawyer summarizes these laws as loving God and loving your neighbor. He's been listening to Jesus. And this summary is a lot easier than following 613 laws individually. Loving God was the foundation of Jewish law. And loving God and neighbor were extremely important. Last week, through the parable of Lazarus and Abram and the rich man and his five brothers, which we read from Luke 16, we were reminded that we bear fruit. That we bear fruit on account of our root. When Jesus is the root or the foundation of our life, this cannot help but bear fruit in our lives. It cannot help but the fruit will be evident in our life. As the conversation continues, it takes a bit of a different direction. And Luke tells us then that the teacher of the law, he wanted to justify himself. He wanted to be able to say, I can do all this. I do have eternal life. And so the lawyer asks the next question, who's my neighbor? The lawyer wanted to be able to know that the way he was living was the right way. He wanted to be able to justify that he lived a life that could inherit eternal life. And Jesus knew that nobody could live up to the law of God. And on their own, nobody could inherit eternal life. So the lawyer, yes, he answered correctly. But you can't do this on your own. Do this and you will live. But guess what? You can't do it on your own. So verse 29, the, answer, or the lawyer wanted to justify himself. And the term justify means to be made just, to be made righteous, to be before God and declared right. And we are justified and we are made right before God on account of Jesus Christ. The lawyer, however, wanted to justify himself. He wanted to be able to receive acceptance by God on his own doing. And again, it can't be done. A sinner, each of us, can only be justified by God through Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can make us right before God. And Jesus prompted 
to show him and to show us that we often fall short in our works. And Jesus responded to the lawyer's flawed question, who is my neighbor? And you will see in a moment why the question is flawed. Jesus tells a parable how we should strive to respond to God's love by loving God and loving our neighbor. And in this parable, there's a man, and he's not identified. So he could have been a Jew, or he could have been a Gentile. And this man is a victim. And the journey that he began would have had a different outcome than expected. And by the listeners and by us, he may very well be judged as reckless and unwise. And that's not to say that he couldn't have done things differently. But the man was traveling on this 27-kilometer stretch of dangerous highway, a road, between Jerusalem and Jericho. This road was known by everyone to be treacherous. It was known to have thieves along it. Thieves would hide in these caves and, and along the road, and they would just wait to rob their innocent traveler. In fact, this road was nicknamed the Bloody Way. Likely a thought for any listener would be, why on earth is this man walking this stretch on his own? If something happens to him, simply his own fault. This guy was asking for it. It's unwise to travel alone, and it serves him right. And he got beat up, and this should teach him a lesson. Everybody knows you shouldn't be traveling on this stretch of road on your own between these two cities. Another thought that might enter the listener's mind would be, well, if only he had given what the thieves wanted, he could have walked away unharmed. Typically, typically, a thief in the Near East didn't beat up the innocent person unless the person resisted. So he got beat up. He must have resisted. This guy got himself into trouble. He can get himself out of trouble. He can suffer the consequences. There are victims all over this world. People who might have gotten into this position themselves. Likely not. People who are on a journey alone, sometimes physically alone, emotionally alone, spiritually alone, without a relationship with the Lord, or they're pressed by others. And they continue on this journey by themselves. And just as the listeners in this parable, we might judge victims and people in this world that they should know better. We may respond that it's not my problem to get involved. Maybe, maybe not. Although Jesus commands us to go and make disciples of all nations. But as we continue this story, uh, next is a priest and a Levite that traveled through. Levites were uh, descendants of the tribe of Levi, and they were from a small priestly tribe. Not all Levites were priests, but all priests needed to be Levites. In the Near East times, a priest would have been wealthy enough not to have traveled by foot, 
and the priest likely had his own transportation and his people with him. He would have had a bit of an entourage. It would have been easy for the priest to assist the wounded victim by transporting him to get care. But this guy was a priest. And what if this person, this victim, were a dead Jew? Or even if the person was alive, what if he was a live non-Jew or a Gentile? Because either of these situations would mean that the priest would become unclean. And you have to understand, it was a big deal to purify himself, purify himself if this were the case. The priest thought he probably was doing the will of God by staying true to the Old Testament laws of purification, some of those 613 laws. But his so-called obedience to these laws prevented from compassion and mercy and justice being accomplished. And too often, biblical laws are used to override the commands of compassion and even mission. We'll bring up Old Testament laws to justify not doing something or doing something that we shouldn't be doing. Deciding to assist the person would have been like canoeing the mountains for the priest to the Levite. It was a big deal. So the Levite enters the story, and similar to the priest, he passed by. And it was assumed, too, that he wasn't traveling alone. As mentioned in verses 31 and 32, Luke emphasizes that both the priest and the Levite, and he uses the terms, both the priest and Levite saw. They saw the man, and they just ignored him. They did nothing. They both saw that there was a need, but they let it be. They ignored the need. And are there times that we see the need, but then we fail to do anything about it? Do you see the needs of the person sitting next to you or around you? Do we see the needs in this community or in our own communities? What are we doing about the needs and the people? Does it feel sometimes that we're coming up against the mountains when we see all the needs around us and in this world. Or maybe we see the needs, but like the listeners, we ignore them because that person got him or herself into trouble. They've made their choice. They can get themselves out of trouble. They should have known better. Oh, that person's on social assistance. Yeah, they made some bad choices. Drugs, hanging out with the wrong crowd, bad relationships, gambling, alcohol. And those bad choices could go on. Or they've intentionally, someone's intentionally walked away from the church, walked away from God's word, and they know what they're up to. They know what they're doing. They could figure they can do things on their own. And we quickly justify that we're not going to help someone who gets him or herself into trouble. Just then, Jesus tells us about the Samaritan. The Jews and the Samaritans had a strained relationship. And they were not to associate with one another. And even though the Samaritans were actually descendants of the Jews, the Jews would deny that. 
The Samaritans were a mixed blood. They were seen as trouble. They were not liked. In fact, at the end of the passage, when Jesus asked the lawyer which person was the neighbor, the lawyer couldn't even answer. Oh, the Samaritan was the neighbor. No, he said, he replied to Jesus' question as, the one who had mercy. The Samaritan, as noted by Luke, also saw the person. The Samaritan, too, saw the need. But he didn't walk to the other side of the road and keep going. Scripture says he took pity on him. The Samaritan felt a deep affection. He felt strong compassion for the injured man. And the Samaritan not only saw with his eyes, but he loved with his heart. And the word took pity is often used in the Gospels, and it's frequently recorded of Jesus Christ and Jesus' attitude towards multitudes and towards individuals. It's where Jesus took pity on the crowds or on a certain person. The Samaritan saw the man, he took pity on the man, and he did something about the need. The Samaritan had a long way to travel down the road, as did the other folks. But he used his traveling resources for this victim. And he adapted his journey. And he invested into this injured man. And the Samaritan poured oil and wine on his wounds. He would have used any available cloth that he had. Perhaps he had to take the shirt off his own back and use it as a bandage for this man. And he transported the man to the inn, risking his own life along the road. And then he paid for this man's stay and his continued care at the inn. Was the Samaritan a sucker? Perhaps to the priest and the Levite and even to this lawyer and maybe to some other listeners, he was. But he saw, he took pity, he adapted his route, and he acted. Now another point to mention This Samaritan was obviously on a journey, and he was on a mission as well. And he was traveling down this road for a purpose. And he was flexible enough to be a neighbor to this injured man, to this victim. But notice how he didn't drop all his tasks. Because he left again the next day to continue his purpose. He ensured that the injured man was left in the good care of the innkeeper. He had compassion, and he also delegated. He involved others. The Samaritan left resources with the innkeeper and then delegated the innkeeper to look after the man. The Samaritan used his resources and ensured that he will return, and he will follow up with any costs and follow up with the injured man. Did the injured man consume all the Samaritan's time? No. Others were involved in being a good neighbor as well. But let's get back to that original question that the expert of the law asked when he said, who is my neighbor? Jesus doesn't respond to that question. Rather, Jesus asks, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Friends, maybe it's time that we just stop asking ourselves, who is my neighbor? Because there is a world out there with people who are in need. 
people who are on a journey on their own without Jesus, and in other cases without justice, they're oppressed. And I think we know who our neighbors are. They're sitting beside us, they're living beside us, they're in towns around us and in our world. And maybe we're even judging some of our neighbors. Each of the three travelers, the priests, the Levite, and Samaritan, were able to see quite quickly and plainly that there are needs. It's easy enough for us to see the needs around us. The question is, what are you going to do about it? And especially if the person got themselves into trouble. How can we be the neighbor that God calls us to be? Well, being a neighbor takes eyes. You have to see the need. And being a neighbor takes, a, takes heart. You have to have a heart and compassion for all God's people. You have to be the one to have mercy. And mercy is a divine quality where God faithfully keeps his promises even though we fail. Mercy is a steadfast love of our God even though we don't deserve to be treated with love. God should be judging us and saying to us that we got ourselves into this mess. Do it on your own. But he doesn't. Mercy is God punishing His one and only Son for our sins so that we can be justified, so that we can be declared righteous before God. Mercy is God saying to us, I told you not to walk on the streets at midnight. I told you not to live your life like that. I keep telling you that you need to adapt your life, that you need to adapt your journey. And God continues to have mercy on us continues to love us unconditionally because of God's mercy and God justifying us through Jesus his son we are called to go and do likewise to show mercy to love unconditionally we are called to be the hands the heart the feet of Jesus we're called to be the neighbor that God calls us to be, to love God and love your neighbor. Do this and you will live. Do this because God has already done it for you. Repent. Turn your life around to Jesus. Follow him and his command. This church, this community, this world has its problems when you begin to think about it, it becomes overwhelming. And sometimes thinking about all that needs to be done, it leads into inactivity. And it's too hard to begin. It's easier to turn back, to go back where we came from than to canoe the mountains. But being a neighbor means that you start small. Help where you see a need with their very own eyes. And we can't begin to fulfill every single need in this world. But we are called to fulfill something. And just as a Samaritan, we'll have our role, and others will have an opportunity for their role. We do mission together as a community of God's people. 
Have mercy for someone that brings tears to your eyes, that makes your heart ache. That mercy and that love that, can, that you feel at the pit of your stomach. And I hope you can feel that. And if not, pray. Pray that the Lord will break your heart for what breaks his. Get to know people in this church. Not just the ones that you get along with and that you share things in common. Yes, that's important too. But get to know others in the church. Intentionally, who are we a neighbor to? Get to know people in your communities, in your world. There are needs. We see them. And we can be neighbors to many people. You know, we live in a culture that the norm is kind of the keep to yourself. We have our garages. We drive our cars into and enter our houses. And we have our fenced backyards where we can keep to ourselves. And, and even in, if you live in an apartment and you have an elevator, we all look at those numbers on the top, right? Well, this church has the opportunity to be countercultural. The church and its bodies of believers will be people who, through the power of the Holy Spirit of Jesus and on account of Jesus, are going to create a world of love and a world of mercy, which then could become the norm. Do this because Jesus did this for you, and you will live. Amen. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your word and how your word again reminds us, as, uh, us of how you have graciously given us your son, Jesus Christ, who died for all our sins, that we do not justify ourselves, but we are justified by the body and blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you for your forgiveness and for salvation through Jesus, and may our faith in Jesus grow stronger, and may we respond to your love by loving you and loving our neighbor. May we respond to your love by being the neighbor that you challenge us to be. And help us to not only see the needs around, of those around us, but to act on those needs. And we confess that sometimes we are slow to action, or we justify our inaction. Help us to show the love of Jesus through our actions and our words. Use us for your purposes through the power of your Holy Spirit. Break our heart for what breaks yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.